Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, uh, Penguin Random House 2015. You can find it anywhere books are sold. So what's going on everybody? It's a cloudy week in Portland. As usual, it's October. We had a huge storm this weekend and we lost power, but for the perfect amount of time. It was great. It only lasted a couple of hours. We already had a fire in the fireplace. We had good books to read, knitting to be done. It was awesome. Then the power came back on, you know, before it got too dark or cold or before I had to start worrying about food in the fridge. Two hours in the afternoon, that's a perfect power outage. Unfortunately, lots of other people in my city were out for a lot, lot longer. It was a big storm. Anyways, that was that. Um, I've got a guest this week that I'm really excited to talk about, um, or to talk to, excuse me. But <clears throat> before we get her on the line, you know, last week I talked about, you know, I, I addressed the, you know, the topic of the week, which was sexual assault and about how prevalent it is and how many women, um, you know, I proposed all women, um, experience it. And I got an email uh, from a listener who heard that episode, and she said she doesn't want me to use her name. I respect that. Uh, but I wanted to read it because I thought it was a pretty nice, um, it's a perspective that I really value. Um, here's what she wrote. I heard last week's episode about sexual abuse and pregnancy, and I wanted to tell you my story. I'm pregnant for the first time, and I survived a rape as a teenager. I'm still traumatized by what happened to me, but it's been more than a dozen years, and I've found ways to live my life, and I'm even happy. I've found a partner, someone who understands me and supports me, and I've been able to do a lot of healing. I figured out fairly young that going to a gynecologist, you know, even for a well woman exam, was going to be very anxiety provoking. So I started developing strategies for getting through it. First and foremost, I only see women doctors because seeing a male doctor, even for something simple like bronchitis, makes me feel trapped and edgy. For gynecology care, I've seen the same doctor for a long, long time, and she understands what I've been through. She's very gentle, very patient, and she always asks me if I'm okay. I told her right up front that I don't want to have pelvic exams unless it's 100% necessary, and she's been really great about keeping them to a minimum. Now that I'm pregnant, my doctor actually recommended that I transfer my care over to a midwifery practice that she likes. She told me that while she'd love to take care of me during my pregnancy, that her practice's call schedule means she might not be the doctor on call when it comes time to give birth. It also means she wouldn't necessarily be able to hold my hand through all the potentially triggering moments that are inevitable when you're in labor and giving birth. I was really shocked by that, but really, really appreciated that she knew another provider who could better meet my needs, and that she was willing to help me find her. I'm eight months pregnant now, and my midwives have been incredible. I know they'll take special care of me during labor and birth, and that they'll support me in all the ways I need. That's all I wanted to say, 
but you'd mentioned that 99% of the doctors you worked with were good guys, and I thought I'd tell you how true that is. Well, right? That's kindness right there. A doctor who set her patient up with the best possible care, even when that care provider wasn't her. This doc knew that you know, a midwife would probably have more time during prenatal care and be less intrusive and you know, be able to spend more time with her patient during labor, would focus more on the woman's needs and less on the needs of the practice or the maternity unit. It's cool, right? I hope this listener will keep us posted as to how labor and birth go. I'll be thinking about you, listener, and sending all good thoughts for a gentle, easy, and powerful birth. Okay, you guys keep the emails coming. They're great. They're great. Um, let's get to this week's guest. So if you work in the global birth world, um, you're going to hear my guest name mentioned fairly often. She's a midwife, she's a speaker, she's an educator and an advocate, and someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time. Let's get Robin Churchill on the phone. Hello? Hi, Robin. This is Jeannie. How are you? Good. How are you? I am very well. I am having a really, really stormy Monday morning here in Portland, Oregon. Where am I finding you? I'm in Boston, and it's sunny and beautiful fall colors. Oh, my God. Is it warm? Um, today, it's supposed to get up to 80, which is ridiculous. Yeah, it um, is. Yeah. Well, yeah. I've, got, I've got my you know, thermal layer on. I've got my boots on. I've got my big sweater on. It's cold here. I mean, it's going to get colder, but that's Portland. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Robin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I feel like I, I'm actually kind of surprised that um, you and I haven't talked before, because I think we are in concentric circles in the birth community, and it just seems like we know all the same people. <laughs> it's a small world. It is. It is a small world. What I'd like to do to just get this conversation rolling, Robin, is I want to go ahead and read your bio, and um, and then we'll just start talking. Cool? Sounds good. All right. Robin Churchill is Senior Advisor at Clinton Health Access Initiative. In this role, she supports government and Ministry of Health activities in maternal and newborn health, including family planning, and works to support the nursing and midwifery professions advocating for stronger participation in national policy and programming decisions by national nurse and midwife stakeholders. She has also developed programs of clinical and professional mentoring for nurses and midwives in many countries. A certified nurse midwife with 20 plus years experience in women's health and hospital administration, Robin has worked as a doula, nurse, and midwife founded a Latina doula program, and served as directory of midwifery for the largest midwifery service in New England. She also actively worked on state and national women's health legislation, and when her youngest left home for college, Robin moved into global health at the Harvard School of Public Health as research director for Better Birth, a large trial of the World Health Organization Safe Childbirth Checklist in Northern India. Robin is currently the chair of the American College of Nurse Midwives Division of Global Health, is a peer reviewer for the Journal of Nurse Midwifery and BMC Pregnancy, and serves on the boards of the Global Health Media Project and Global Nursing Caucus. Robin has held clinical appointments at Harvard Medical School, Yale School of Nursing, and Boston University Medical School. 
Ooh, Robin, I don't usually read everybody's complete 100% bio, but I kind of have a crush on yours. I really, <laughs> really wish I was you right now. You know, I, I always listen to that. And I think, wow, I've lived a long time. <laughs> you know, I have a feeling if you've got a 20 plus year career um, and, and that's how long I've, I've been in, um, you know, the obstetric world for about 25 years now. I bet we're pr- probably pretty close to the same age. Well, you know how that goes, right? You just start in one thing and then there's just so much work to be done in this area. And you if you're willing, going. your career unfolds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you do labor and delivery nursing? Um, very briefly. I actually found I liked the postpartum work better. Um, it was back in the 90s, early 90s. And I found that, that the work I could do with women, you know, at night, bringing their babies back out of the nursery, kind of stealing the babies back to the moms, was much more um, in, in line with the way I wanted to work. It was a little bit of subterfuge, but in the interest of helping moms be better moms that yeah. are able to take care of their newborns. Yeah, rooming in. It was the beginning of that time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So after I read somebody's bio, I like to ask the hard question. Who are you and what do you do? I am, I have always been open to opportunity. I actually dropped out of graduate school to go to nursing school because I had my son um, with midwives and was a teacher in Newark, New Jersey, and a couple of students also got pregnant, and I found that teaching them about pregnancy was far more rewarding than having them in a formal classroom with kind of dry material in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just, I think that across my career, it's, even outside of my formal career, it's just been really um, being open to what's in front of me, kind of seeing problems and potential solutions. Um, innovating, kind of stepping in and just trying stuff out and being willing to not have it work Mm -hmm. and then try again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good plan. So you, what were you in graduate school for? Education, of course. You were going to be a teacher. (laughs) Got it. Got it. And, and do you know what age group you were looking for? I was actually interested in, I had been teaching bilingual education and um, was very interested in two-way bilingual multicultural edu- um, education and was interested in curriculum design. Uh, on the adult level or for kids? Oh, secondary school, yeah. elementary school, really. Yeah. At that point, it was just public schools. Yeah, still a, still a wide canvas to paint on there. Right. So then you My kids t- ended up in a bilingual two-way immersion program. Um, so that's the one thing that came out of that prior career. Yeah. Huh, that's interesting, huh? Maybe you went into education because you needed that information for your own children. Hmm. Yeah, who knows? So you mentioned that you were in the largest midwifery service in New England. Where, in Boston? So it was Mount Auburn Hospital. It was not the largest when I started. We were just uh, six midwives when I started. When I left, there were 26 midwives. Um, we developed a lot of, we had great midwives who all had their own interest areas and a fantastic chairman who was really interested in having services that met um, patient needs, women's needs. And so we had an insemination program. Um, We did ultrasounds, some uh, colposcopy, uh, triage. Uh, We were in the triage unit, had a postpartum support group. 
Um, so it was just basically we expanded what we did beyond just delivering babies mm -hmm. and, um, and just kept growing. There was a real demand from women in the community. They started coming to us, and the department just kept growing and growing and growing, and we went from being about 10% of the hospital deliveries births mm -hmm. to um, almost 50% mm -hmm. by the time I left. And is that because women found out about you? <laughs> yes. I mean, it was completely driven by community um, awareness and women's, women's um, I guess, active seeking out of the type of care that they wanted. It's a beautiful practice. It's um, still pretty much, if not the largest in the, in the region, it's still pretty big. I, I was having a debate with somebody recently about whether or not, um, <clears throat> excuse me, patients or clients were able to drive enough of the, you know, share of the birth market that they could impact change. And I was arguing that if enough women demanded midwifery care, especially in places where it's pretty limited, um, that eventually the industry would accommodate them. And and I think that we've seen that in other, you know, we, we saw that during the 70s, during the first big natural childbirth movement, where women and men, families, kind of help drive that economy. W what do you think? So I think it even goes back before then. And it's a certain segment of the population. It's always the, the birth movement has pretty much been driven by the educated elite, um, as much of social uh, change can be. Um, there were the, what were they called, the Twilight Sleep Society, societies that uh, sprung up in the early 1900s, 1920s, and that's pretty much what drove the, um, the switch to medicating women during childbirth. It, was, it came from the women. That did not come from the hospital or medical establishment. It was women who said, we want to sleep through this pain of labor. Um, given what we knew at that time um, and how science and you know, natural was, was perceived by society. It wasn't considered a good thing. Um, it made sense that women would demand this. I think that, that we are now in a point where we know that too much intervention is bad. It can cause problems um, rather than um, solve them. But I always point that out because I think it is, yes, I think there's an awful lot of power that women have and need to, um, and families have, that they need to, to take. But we get that for good, bad, and indifferent. So it has come full circle. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, I, I've been talking with um, quite a few people in New York lately about the status of midwives there. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, in, you know, I, I, I'm just still, I, I'm in Oregon. Excuse me for stammering, but I'm in Oregon. We're about as liberal as you get in the birth community. And... Yeah. There's a midwife, I mean, swing a cat and you're going to hit a dozen in my neighborhood. They're just, they're, midwives are everywhere. And so I'm still really surprised that there are, you know, huge metropolises where midwives are scarce. And, you know, I, I'm saying, yeah, but if women just said, I don't want an obstetrician, I want a midwife, I mean, when it's appropriate, would that change the market? Would that impress the powers that be in the birth community to say, okay, well, we're going to give them what they want. What do you think? Would they? 
So there's all, people have political power or economic power um, within a system. And if you want to change the system, someone's going to have to give up power. So the Accountable Care Act uh, is uh, kind of fell into that because the idea of single payer, which was really the in initial intent, couldn't pass because the insurance companies have a lot of power, a lot of economic foothold in the system. So the political concession was to work within that. I think that when you talk about the way maternity care is, is provided in this country, um, the obstetric and medical community has an awful lot of power um, and, and purchase in that area. Um, and so in the pockets of the country where there are plenty of obstetricians who are incentivized by the, the number of birth deliveries that they attend, births that they do, um, it's going to be really hard to push. I mean, if you bring in midwives, by you know, there's there's a set number of births to attend, and so you will be pushing people out. And if those people have strong, more power than you do, I think it's not as straightforward. Um, I sat in legislative sessions here in Massachusetts where um, there was a huge pushback from the medical community, and it wasn't about outcome. It was about numbers of hours uh, that, that a nurse midwife studied versus the number of hours that an obstetrician studied, which in my mind, isn't, is, that's not the correlative um, point of interest. It's really if the outcomes are as good or better with midwives who have fewer hours of training, then the value of the midwife is greater. And the obstetricians should only be doing things that take seven years of training. And so they should be doing more complex procedures and dealing with more high-risk situations, which is the British model, um, which also has its, its uh, problems. But f fundamentally, I think that that comes out of this political power um, uh, fight, if you will, or economic power. Yeah, it's, it's political, it's economic. There's a lot of gender equity that we have to talk about. I mean, there's just so many issues there. Why midwives don't rule the birth community in the United States. When you try to put the midwives into a space, a community where the need is already met by another provider, namely obstetricians, that's, uh -huh. there's just, you're pushing, someone's got to be pushed out. But what's happening, in fact, in the U.S. right now is there aren't enough obstetricians being produced by medical schools and residencies to meet the needs of um, American women. And they don't want to be obstetricians anymore. It's, no. Well, there's yeah. part, part of it is the malpractice issues. The hours are terrible. But also there are all of these subspecialties. I know here in, it was probably about four years ago when I was last involved in um, resident training in, the, in um, Boston. And out of, I think there were 11 OBGYN residents graduating from one of the teaching hospitals here. And only one of them was going into general practice. And even she said, I want to have a couple of kids while I'm in general practice, but then I'm going to go back and specialize as well. So you have urogynecology, you have um, 
you have um, reproductive endocrinology and reproductive medicine. You have a lot of these specialties within obstetrics. Which are better money, easier hours, more right. interesting work. Right. And yeah. you can argue that's a probably a better place for someone with that much training. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, right. However, there are you know, tens of thousands of obstetricians in a state or in a city, you know, depending on where you are, and maybe a hundred or so or a thousand or so midwives. So the, the, the shift in power is going to have to come from something else. What's the well, leverage? I, so I don't, I, I know some of the, 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 um, the challenges to producing enough midwives are that if I work in a hospital, I get paid for taking residents, but I do not get paid for taking midwife students. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a big, uh, there, there is some legislation that's getting um, moved forward to change that. There are also um, not as many schools of midwifery that there aren't enough faculty because to be faculty, you take a pay cut. Um, it's, there's, there's, there are a lot of challenges. It's a systems issue. I yeah. think we're making strides at least to identify the need. Um, it, but it's it, the and the other piece that we haven't talked about is distribution of the workforce. So my sister lives in uh, rural Idaho. She works for the Forest Service, mm -hmm. um, and there is an eleven-bed hospital in the little town that she lives in, which is two hours away from any city. Um, and if you have an emergency, you get med flighted to uh, Spokane, which I think is a four-hour drive. Mm -hmm. So, and they can't find doctors to work there they had a husband and wife family practice team that's not an obstetrician yeah so did they do um deliveries there at that they, did. they did a lot of people have their babies at home with a, a local midwife and they mm -hmm. have the um, family practice docs in in for emergencies mm -hmm. um but it's not an ideal situation it's not that different from africa right exactly which might be a good way for us to sort of shift gears. I wanted to ask you, you know, what do you do as the senior advisor at Clinton Health Access Initiative? Oh, that is and, the question. And, and <laughs> does this have a U.S. focus or a global focus? No. Tell me about that. So, um, first of all, I I will just start by saying I I object to the fact that global health doesn't include the U.S. because we are part of the globe, and I the know. the issues are the same. It's just the yes. degree of need is different. Um, and the resources available are, are different. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I do do the kind of global health that doesn't include the U.S. Um, yeah. <laughs> although, yeah, I know. Although I am very involved and very passionate about the work that goes on here in the United States as well. Yeah. It's we where, definitely have a very strong <clears throat> us and them perspective. And ironically, we are um, one of the only countries in the world with an increasing maternal mortality rate. The other countries yep. are at war or have major um, disasters. Um, yeah, I work in countries that are, have lower uh, maternal mortality rates than some of our counties in rural Mississippi. Yeah. So. Yeah. I know. That one's a real shocker for a lot of listeners. Um, you know, I, I sometimes feel like we're all talking to the same people. And so everybody in our community knows this fact about maternal mortality being worse, you know, rising in the U.S. But I still meet women, families, healthcare providers, even obstetricians who really don't, they don't know that yet. They right. still don't know that. And, you know, 
What do we got to do? <laughs> yeah, there's, um, I, I don't know Latin American statistics as well, but I think that there are several countries there that, that are approaching our um, outcomes. And I know we're ahead of Mace or Macedonia is ahead of us. Mm -hmm. I think that we are, a lot of Middle Eastern countries are ahead of us. I think that we need to start paying attention. Um, there is some thought that uh, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of justifying it, saying, oh, women are older, they're sicker, they're more obese. All of this is true. But if you actually look at the at the numbers, that does not account for the degree of increase. Then there is another there are another other voices that say, well, we're better at reporting it. We're actually capturing more of the numbers, in which case I would say, OK, but the numbers are really high. You know, yeah. at this point, right? I mean, that's maybe it's not increasing, but if not, it's embarrassingly high and has been. Mm -hmm. um, and Neil Shaw has done some really nice work out of Harvard. Um, yeah, he's coming on. He's coming on the podcast uh, beginning in November. Oh, he's fantastic! I used to yes. sit. I used to sit next to him when I worked at the School of Public Health. He's um, he has really figured this stuff out. I mean, he's still yeah. working on the solution, but he has identified the problem and nailed it. And what yeah. he talks about, I won't go too much into it since you'll have him. But it's you can have mortality that is due to under um, or or too little intervention. Like in rural uh, Malawi, women can't get to a C-section when they need one. Right. You can't get babies to resuscitation when they need help breathing. Mm -hmm. or, but you can also have the problem in this country where there is too much intervention. Every woman gets an epidural. Epidurals are safe, but they're not as safe. It, it, they carry some risks. Where sure. 30, over 30% 30 of women are getting C-sections. We don't do any other um, surgeries with a radical incision like that. We do everything laparoscopically. But as my son said when he was little, he's like, it's too bad you can't deliver a baby through a belly button. But, yeah. we, but we can't. <laughs> and we know the reason that all of the other surgeries have become these you know, minimally invasive surgeries is because the, the risks are lower. You have less bleeding, you have less risk of infection, you have less wound dehiscence. All of this is important. And we can't deliver a baby through a belly button. So you right. have risks with surgery. Yeah. So you said, you know, when we first started talking about this, um, quote, unquote, global perspective, that the issues are all the same, except for that the biggest glaring ish difference between us, the United States, and them, everybody else in the entire world, practically, is that we are... Um, we're providing computer care and insurance care over patient care. And we're doing all of these interventions to make sure that we've got all our checklists clicked off and that we're going to make sure that we've got medically defensible charts for the insurance company in case things go wrong. And I wonder how often, you know, even, even if we did say, okay, yeah, American mothers are older, they're heavier, all of that. Is it that or is it the care plan that gets prescribed to them so that we're defensible, you know? Sure. But I would also say that that same overcare is a problem in Africa and Latin America and Asia That's as well. Well, it's, it's um, so I can tell you a story about the Dominican Republic. I did some work there. And what we found was the, in, in Eastern uh, DR, there were, 
there's a, that's where all of the sugarcane plantations were. And way back when um, Baptiste, Baptiste uh, was the, was the um, um, dictator, he basically, uh, the, he and the, the Haitian and the Dominicans governments um, did some backdoor dealing where Haitians were abducted off the streets and came essentially as slaves to work on these these plantations. Now, they were no longer recognized by Haiti, and they were not Dominican. So they had children, and those children had no country. And then those children grew up and had children, and they were completely, um, <laughs> truly undocumented. Mm -hmm. And then the Dominican government said, all right, we're going to actually have some national health insurance plans, and one of the things we will do is we will provide citizenship to every baby that is born in a health care facility. And this was with the big push to get women to deliver in health care facilities, thinking that that was going to improve outcomes. Um, we now know that that's not enough. Um, to improve outcomes. But what happened was women said, yeah, I want my child to have a birth certificate and an identity. So mm -hmm. they would come to the facilities. Well, the problem with was in some of these facilities, there was only a provider on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And the provider was an obstetrician, and he would do C-sections. Mm -hmm. So women who were having their third or fourth baby would say, okay, this one I'm going to have there. And they'd come on Tuesday, Thursday, or Saturday on a motorbike, and they'd have their C-section, and then they'd get sent home an hour or two later on the motorbike, 50 miles of dirt roads, to recover. And that happened, and they had After almost... Yes, exactly. Wow. But their babies got the birth certificates. And how'd the moms do? Um, that's one of the places where I've seen a woman walking around with eclampsia. Like yeah. full-blown seizures, yeah. they're yeah. they're not doing well. Yeah. Now I I know that policy has shifted, but that that story tells you that there is a lot more driving women's decisions uh, than we are than we are thinking of in a narrow, you know, pro pro provider care-centered model. So we yeah. think, oh, they're finally they have access to C-sections. That's great, but they don't have access to normal, safe, um, vaginal birth. Right. So, you know, yes, there's some balancing of risk in, in fact that they do have a facility and there is a provider, but that is offset by the fact that the provider is doing too many interventions and isn't available. There isn't somebody available around the clock. Exactly. What happens if those women just have a spontaneous labor, you know, at 2 a.m. on a Monday? Yep. That yeah. happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. So. Yeah. And and it is, it's about fear. I think there's a lot of fear. There's fear in this country. A lot of, uh, we don't watch women die at the same rates that you would in a rural uh, facility in Ethiopia. Right. Um, but what we're f afraid of here are bad outcomes. We've all certainly seen either uh, newborn deaths or stillbirths or, you know, bad outcomes. They're just sure. morbidities rather than mortalities. And so we're afraid of that. And we know yeah. that every provider who's had one bad outcome, that colors how you assess every future labor um, or woman or baby as, for, for some period of time after sure. that. And that's just yeah, who we are as humans, right? Yeah. Now, and, for, and here in the United States and probably many other places, it's not just the bad outcome, but it's the, it's the professional scrutiny that you have to undergo mm -hmm. afterwards that is so scary to so many of us that work in the industry. I mean, if you've had a baby die, and, and of course it's a tragedy to the nurse or the midwife or the physician too, um, 
after that, then you have to go over your chart with a team of attorneys who criticize and question every move you made. Even when we know you did fine, your patient care was fine. It's traumatizing. And you aren't allowed to talk about it. Right, right. So everything that we, and we as midwives know this, we know that you need a way to talk through bad outcomes or yeah. and and being sued or having a bad outcome that's that's a that's bad for you but we are not allowed to talk about it and so and and physicians live in these silos of of guilt um midwives nurses and we can't even talk to each other right even if we were all in that room when that that thing happened we yeah. can't even talk to each other so what you do is you traumatize that's that's classic kind of re-traumatizing the traumatized person yeah. 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 And yeah. we've all been through it. Any of us that have been to, you know, more than a handful of deliveries, it happens. It's just the way it is. Right. But it, right. we don't have a system to take care of the care providers. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I think yeah. that in other countries, there's different fear that drives decisions. Um, yeah, mom's died. Right. And when, when I was working in northern India, what I learned was that every prime up, every first time mom got referred, they didn't even accept her in some of these rural facilities because they were too afraid that second time moms, you know, they're easy, easier. Mm-hmm. But it was that first time they're like, yeah, we just refer them. We don't assess them. We just send them on because we're afraid. Um, so some of our listeners w- won't know what we mean by refer. So if you're in a rural healthcare facility, so you're in a small town, um, a, a small hospital, we have level one hospitals in the U.S., and then you have a certain capacity of, of risk that you can manage. You have certain uh, procedures that you can provide. There are, in a birth center, for example, in the U.S., you can't provide a C-section, but you can do all normal care and just a tiny bit into the risk stabilization, and then you would need to call an ambulance or whatever that referral um, transportation is, and you would have to send a woman who's in some early stages of risk to the referral hospital. Mm-hmm. And so there is a physical transporting of the woman from the, from the first level of care to the referral level. And there's also a clinical referral process, which is a communication. So if I am the birth center midwife or the rural health center midwife, um, then I would have to document what happened to this woman and why I'm referring her. Maybe she's had, been in labor for three days and the baby doesn't seem to be responding very well and has a low heart rate. And so I would document that and send that bit of information to the referral hospital. I can call them. I can send a piece of paper. There are many ways of doing that. And then the referral hospital is ready. They're prepared to do a C-section or a blood transfusion or whatever is needed at that point in order to take care of that woman. Right. So um, you're a pretty big traveler. You said 70%, and you're just back from a conference and then headed out somewhere again later this week, did you say? Um, No, actually, I'm racing in a rowing regatta this week, so I'm home, but I'm going to Nigeria next month. (laughs) So, yeah. So tell me me, what you're doing. Why are you traveling? What is your focus? And what is is the biggest priority for you? So um, our organization, CHAI, uh, the Clinton Health Access Initiative. It has been around since uh, 2002 when um, they started uh, doing work with HIV. The, this was back when uh, folks who had HIV in the U.S. or Europe could get treated and could at least prolong their life. At that point, it was still that you 
you didn't think you were living with a chronic disease. It was just prolonging the quality of your life. But this, these drugs were not available to Africa. And fundamentally, there was this conversation which said, um, we can't afford to treat people in Africa who have HIV. And so it became a real pandemic. Um, at that point, there were AIDS activists in the US who said, this isn't OK. And um, President Clinton said, you know, this, we can do something with this. And he, he f formed this organization to basically use um, his position to negotiate drug prices and then um, provide um, drug delivery supply chains and then all the way down to the front line. And we did a lot of training of nurses to, in, in Africa to take care of, um, to actually deliver the care to the HIV positive patients. And that was how CHAI was started. We've since been working with ministries of health. We get invited into countries and we help on health care issues. Mm -hmm. I was hired to support the maternal newborn care initiatives that we've been supporting, the family planning work, and um, I work on the health workforce team as well to support nursing and midwifery. And what we find in all of these countries is that nurses and midwives, as we know, provide almost 90%, they are almost 90% of the health care workforce. They provide almost 90% of the care that, that in globally that, that people need. Um, including here in the U.S. Including here in the U.S. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And actually, with the advanced practice nurses, nurse midwives, nurse anesthetists, we actually can provide um, that much of the care that's needed for most people who don't need that higher level, higher acuity care. So what happens is ministries are largely made up of doctors, um, and the decisions are made that's where, where doctors have a very strong voice. And they speak for the system, but the nurses don't always have, there's usually one nurse or maybe two in a ministry. And then some of the countries have these very strong associations of nursing, and they're able to advocate for what nurses need, what midwives need. Um, and my work is to help support that. And the countries where nurses and midwives have a stronger uh, professional sense of themselves and have, have a uh, stronger um, regulatory um, legal framework within which to work, they provide better care. They tend to be um, happier about being nurses and midwives, and then they can work more efficiently, more effectively within the public health system. I'm always really interested in how gender dynamics um, impact important conversations. And, you know, just to make this really simple for listeners. So a lot of these conversations that you're engaged in, and, you know, regardless of where in the world you are, takes place around a table, and there's going to be a bunch of doctors and health administrators, and most of them are probably going to be men. And then there's going to be maybe a couple of midwives, maybe a couple of nurses who are probably going to be women. And unless there is you know, I, th I think that what we know is close to 40% equity, then the women aren't really going to be heard much. I mean, it's, it's the, the lean in situation. Women aren't going to have power at the table and there's, unless there's enough women. Do you see that in the work you're doing? Yes. And it's, it, each country is different. Um, and different regions of the world are different, but absolutely. Um, there's, 
there, I think nursing is interesting because there's also um, some socioeconomics that go into it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in India, if you go to nursing school, by and large, you're from a lower caste than um, or class than doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, the female male uh, gender uh, differential is huge. It, uh, it definitely plays a role in it. Um, I, there was recently someone tweeted, someone from the WHO tweeted about this meeting about midwives and, uh, and nurses, and um, most of the people in the meeting were men. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some really fabulous men who speak to the needs of nurses and midwives, and there are many male uh, nurses and midwives um, in many countries. So, there, But that, we're at this point where we don't need men speaking for us anymore. We need to talk for ourselves. But there are male nurses and there oh, are yeah. male midwives. So I want, I want to acknowledge that that also happens. I um, do too. But I yes, do I do think that the gender issue is big and also the kind of care that is provided. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it, birth is messy. Um, you know, it it's... <laughs> yeah, and it takes a long time. It's not straight lines. Um, and, you know, and the care that nurses provide is often really, you know, again, it's just not... It's not quick, it's not clean, and there's nothing sexy about just taking care of sick people or taking right. care of women in labor. Um, it's, it's not surgery, which is very important. <laughs> you know, surgery is really important, <laughs> but it's also kind of time-limited. It's generally in, in a pretty clean environment, and there are yeah. straight lines. There's a lot of control there. Absolutely. Yeah. I was talking to some kids not so long ago, and I think they were about 13 or 14, and it was... Um, there were some guys and there were some girls and it was clear that they hadn't ever really thought through the birth process before, but we were talking about it. And so then the questions I would get, you know, was, okay, so you were the nurse there. So you actually saw everything. <laughs> yep. Yep. See everything. And well, what if she throws up? Well, then you clean it up. Oh, okay. Well, what if she does worse than that? Well, then you clean it up. Oh, They'd have to pay me so much to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that have yeah, to pay you so that. much part. <laughs> they didn't pay that much, did they? No. You know, I someone asked me about this. She was she's considering a clinical um, career, and she said, "I just don't know about the blood and guts." And I, there know, is that. <laughs> well, but I thought about it, and I thought certainly for me, attending a birth is you know most of it isn't blood and guts anyways it's you know women working hard mm-hmm. we we had tubs so it was really easy to get a woman in a tub it's actually kind of clean mm-hmm. um and then at that last moment there's just this magic so you see the baby's head starting to emerge and you watch the baby and the baby's actually wiggling its head to try to fit out mm-hmm. that's like you're looking at that saying oh my goodness there's a person in there yeah. Like there is, the, it's not us doing this thing. This baby is an active participant in this birthing process. Yeah. And then, and mom is there like, just like pushing and feeling what her body's trying to tell her to do. And the baby's kind of wiggling. And there's this whole magical thing that happens. And when that baby's head finally emerges, that last little oomph out into the world. And then you put the baby right up on mom's belly and I guess there's blood and guts, but I never look at it. Yeah, It's just yeah. like what just happened there is yeah. so, like, I don't know, transcendental. 
transcendental ultimate teamwork to the max extreme. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you're just lucky enough to be there to witness it. Yeah. But, you know, being the nurse in the room so often, I would look around at the other faces and depending on who was in the room, there was always somebody cowering in the corner with a weird look on their face. Like they saw the blood and guts. That's what they were seeing. Yeah. It's because they're not right in there, I suppose. But it's also, I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? We are all born through blood and guts. Mm -hmm. Every person on this planet Mm-hmm. We started out in blood and guts. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a little humbling. Yeah. You know, most of us who, you know, make our careers in this world, we have a moment that kind of crystallized that, yep, that's our work. That's what we got to do. And I know for me, I was pretty young. I was, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, something like that. And I actually had the opportunity to attend a home birth. And I loved the whole thing. I loved it. You know, I loved it from the physical perspective and the, spiritual perspective. I mean, all of it. It was just like, oh, that's what you're going to do. And I thought at that point in my life that I'd become a midwife and then didn't. I became a labor and delivery nurse and then went on to journalism and broadcasting and that. But I had that moment. And, you know, it was a home birth when I was a kid. What was your moment? And that when you knew that, oh, that's where I work. That's my work in the world. Um. I think it was my own, um, my own pregnancy and birth, and it was. I mean, I was, I was young. Um, I was in my mid twenties and a kind of control freak, which isn't a good way to be when you are pregnant and, and going to labor. And I had my my pregnancy with these amazing midwives at this birth center in New Jersey. And they just helped me feel like, oh, you can learn this stuff, you can, you can do this. And then having these students who had no idea of what was going on in their bodies and just kind of disconnected from it and kind of feeling like, oh, but I want them to have the kind of experience that I had. And mm-hmm. I talked to people about it. And I kept saying in another life I'd be a midwife. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're 26 years old and you're saying in another life, you gotta, <laughs> at some point you're thinking, wait, 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 I have a life right now that I could do this in. So I can't, yeah. I did plan I, Exactly. And so for me, it was really going through that process and kind of feeling the changes within myself and feeling the power of having been able to do that. Um, and then the first birth I tended as a doula was about nine months later. And I remember suddenly, like the night I got called, my husband looked at me and, you know, he was there with my son and he's like, this is it. Like, you've just dropped out of grad school to do this. What if you don't like it? (laughs) And I'm like, I have no idea, but I think it's going to be fine. And Mm -hmm. I came home in the middle of the night and he was sweet. He got up and he came out to talk to me and he's like, tell me. I'm like, oh my gosh, it was just so miraculous. And the thing I remember most about that first birth was that I was able to help this father who had been disengaged the first time slow dance with his wife. And for her, that was all she wanted. Yeah, and it was the labor dance. Exactly. And so I felt like my, my role, it wasn't about me. It wasn't that I labor danced with her, right? It was yeah. that I got him to pull his eyes off of the ball game and to dance with his wife as their baby was yeah. born. You were the facilitator. Right. Right. Which is really all any of us are exactly. in that room. 
it's really just the mom and the baby doing their thing and we facilitate and show up with clean towels. Mm-hmm. And that's my work yeah. now, actually. That's what I do with nurses and midwives and nursing organizations and midwifery organizations around the world and mentors. It's how, you know, I don't want to come and do things. That's not my vision of what global health is. I'm just this white woman from Boston. What do I know? But mm-hmm. what do I know? I can share information that I've learned in other countries. I can share what they did in Cameroon with what you know, that might be relevant for Zambia. I can, you know, talk about what Nigeria has done and how that might be helpful to Ethiopia Um, and just the teams and then help each country kind of figure out for itself what its priorities are, figure out what the midwifery um, community there knows because they know more about the problems and what resources are available and how they should apply them. And so my role is to help them put that together into some... Um, some format that can be used to further the agenda, the political agenda, the financial agenda. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is, it's just sitting around talking, having important conversations. That's a lot of that. I have met some amazing, amazing midwives around the world and nurses around the world. It's really, that's one of the, my favorite things about my work right now. It's the sisterhood. Yeah. The sisterhood and motherhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are so many other things I want to ask you about. Um, And I feel like we're probably coming close to the end of this conversation. But um, maybe real, real briefly, we could touch on just a couple of other things. Um, You sent me a link to a headline about the World Health Organization and Partners call for an end to discrimination, lack of respect that hinder midwives working conditions. Real, real quickly, tell me what that's about. So um, there was a global consultation on provision of quality midwifery care called Midwives' Voices and Midwives' Realities. And it's for anyone who works in this field, nothing that they came up with was really a surprise. But it was a nice um, summary of the needs, um, of the challenges to, uh, to practicing midwives and to some of the... Um, providing a framework to address it. So they basically come up with um, some of the challenges that midwives face. Uh, They aren't all paid on time. They don't want to live in these communities where there's no education for their children and there's no safe housing. Um, They don't have access to drugs, so they're in a healthcare facility, but they have no drugs to treat women or to prevent Um, problems from happening. They have no neonatal resuscitation equipment, so a baby comes out and isn't breathing and they can't save it. They have no referral networks. They have no electricity. Um, There was a recent quality of care study that showed that of primary health care facilities, only 47% even had um, skilled providers around the clock, which means that if you are a midwife, you're probably the only midwife. And if you go to sleep, there may not be another midwife, and you have to take care of everyone. So they found all of these challenges, and some of them are social, some of them are economic, some of them are professional, and they came up with a list of recommendations for what's needed, and that includes the professional support and organization, solid education, a, reg- a good regulation, a, frame, a, a legal regulation that, that makes, maintains quality of both the schools that are, that are training and educating these midwives as well as maintaining excellence of the or even basic um, 
competence of practicing midwives. Um, and interdisciplinary teamwork is a big thing. And this is one of the hard things when you went back to the gender differences. Mm -hmm. um, there's also these professional silos. And we found it in the U.S. It's only been most, more recently that nurses and midwives and doctors have started to do a lot more integrated teamwork. And we still educate ourselves separately. Um, so in a lot other countries where there are these larger barriers between nurses and doctors or midwives and, and doctors, it's very hard to really bring about this idea of integrated teamwork where you're able to, everyone's able to work together to provide the best quality of care. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's, it's a discussion with some, yeah. with some um, strong recommendations for what it takes to have a professional, um, high-quality midwifery workforce. And it does apply everywhere, including in the U.S. Um, we know we all need to work and live in a place where we feel valued and safe and where we have the tools available to do what we know how to do in order to provide high-quality care. I was traveling in Peru a number of years back, and I was in a tiny village um, talking to uh, the one obstetrician and the, I think there were two or three midwives who had it was a, it was an itty bitty village. There was no power. There was no water. You know, it was very, very remote. And, um, these, this small team, this small healthcare team of midwives and obstetrician had essentially made a commitment that they would spend a considerable chunk of their lives in this village rather than going back to the comforts of Lima where they had, you know, everything that they needed to do the job that they had trained for. But they had committed that they were going to make a difference in this community to bring down maternal mortality rates. And they were incredibly successful. But the midwives told me what it means for them is that they knew they wouldn't ever have children of their own because they couldn't be, you know, one of only maybe two midwives and raise their own children. They did have to be on the clock all the time, all the time. And it wasn't possible for them. So they had made this really difficult life choice. They were going to stay in that village, probably for the midwives. You know, they didn't have the resources that the obstetrician did to be able to move to someplace else. But they gave up having their own families for this because they were that committed. Well, if you think about nursing and midwifery, historically, nuns have provided a lot of that care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I know, you know, one of the questions I did want to ask you was, you know, it, it's hard to be in, it's hard to be a full-time working woman and have your own families. So, you know, it worked in my, it's worked in my family because, you know, my husband is, he's, he's very, very, um, we work as a good team to get shit done. And how do you guys do it? Yep. I always, um, I kind of chafe against um, the realization that people think I have an amazing husband because I think that's just the way it should be. Now, mm -hmm. I do think that this next generation, these, these millennials have it. I think they're figuring it out a lot better. I do too. Um, but in our generation, uh, <laughs> my husband was kind of, um, uh, he was far more active in raising our kids than a lot of husbands. Um, his mom was a nurse and went to school when he was in, uh, when he was in elementary school. And so his father was 
feeding them dinners and, and doing a lot of the care. So I think that he had a good model. I'm always grateful to her for, um, for setting the stage for him to be as supportive of me as he has been. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we were really creative. We didn't put our kids in daycare centers because I didn't think I'd ever get out at five o'clock. And we mm-hmm. were, we, you know, we had other families that helped take care of our children. Um, you know, we had college students who'd live with us. I mean, we, we, I can't say that there's a one size fits all cookie cutter yeah. answer. The answer yeah. was different every different, every other year. Again, it's like I was open to opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> and, you didn't sleep much, right? Um, I, I, there were times when I sure didn't. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I also have the, so midwives have the skill of being able, you put us kind of even semi horizontal and we can take a nap. Yeah. So I did a lot of 20 minute naps. Yeah. Thank God for the 20 minute nap. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like we need to wrap this one up, but there are so many conversations going forward that we could have. And there's just so much to talk about, clearly. Um, But I think it's time to ask the last question, which is this. Where are you in your life with motherhood? So my, I pivoted into global health the year my daughter, my youngest, went to college. So I stayed in the United States. I actually worked um, a mile and a half from my house, which was one of the answers to the previous question, how did I pull it all off? My husband walks to work. I could walk to work. It was pretty, pretty sweet from that standpoint. My... Both of my children are out of college now. Uh, my daughter lives in Dallas, and my son lives a mile down the road in Harvard Square. All right. All right. Well, great. Robin, I really appreciate your, you know, hassling with the tech issues we had and talking to us today. It's been really a pleasure. It's great. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. My guest this week was Robin Churchill. You can learn more about her work at clintonhealthaccess.org. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast, is produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Tweet me at Jean Faulkner, email me, Jean at Jean Faulkner, and go pick up a copy of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, wherever you get your books. Share, subscribe, and join the conversation. Thanks, everybody. Until next week. Bye-bye.